Hello world. This is Kwame, symbolic aka CK Flow. I'm an audiovisual creator, a VR, virtual reality 360 interactive storyteller, and cultural curator. Raised in the golden age of hip hop. Welcome to the podcast. The goal of this show is to look back, to consider where we came from, and to think about where we are today. We'll travel back in time through the experience of our guests and see what we find. My voice is that of a hip hopper, a Canadian immigrant and technology enthusiast, but I'm a big fan of the real world too. My goal was to focus a bit on the 80s, but meeting and interviewing people has made it clear that to look at the 80s demands a look further back in time. Uh, I was working primarily with show bands and then more so with jazz towards the end. But, you know, you could have bands everywhere, every, everything from, from trios up to 10, 12 pieces kind of thing. And the circuit was such that live music was very strong. That's the truly magnificent Tiki Mercury Clark, singer, educator, and songwriter. Usually there was an agent um, that that would you know contact the clubs and and it's, it's sort of a circuit you know an agent would have so many bands and they would also have so many clubs that they normally booked at and and they would just you know just you could mark your calendar and you'd be going to these places you'd be there a week sometimes two sometimes two weeks with a two week option that sort of thing uh, accommodation was included. Um, so, um, you know, you'd be there for a while and, and you'd work Monday to Saturday with a matinee, usually Wednesday afternoons or sometimes it's a Saturday afternoon. In Quebec, you work seven nights a week. It wasn't just six. So in those days, Tiki Mercury Clark made a good living touring with a full band across the nation. Things were going to change drastically. Mid-70s, when the first of the, what they called rhythm mates, rhythm machines, came in and synthesizers first started coming along. What's a rhythm mate? It's the, a beatbox. Huh. Right. Enter technology. But the rhythm mate wouldn't be the only new tech to shake things up by replacing touring band members with digital hardware. DJs would soon replace the entire band. But in the early years, DJs had to play an incognito role. Back in the 1970s, there was no thought about having a DJ being a star. That is Paul Morton. He's been a professional DJ in Toronto since the 70s. He was the under. He was in trouble because basically the stars in the rock band. And when you brought a DJ in the club, you were a bad person because you were taking away four, paying, four jobs and four paying singers. And those people were unemployed because you took their job. So you weren't famous. You weren't DJ somebody famous because you were an asshole that took, took their jobs. So the bar would not advertise you as a DJ because they were afraid that they'd be boycotted or have problems with unions. They kept it quiet. So there was no attributely marketing or fame to a DJ because in large part, he was screwing the, the band out of a job. 
But now these days, DJs are the stars and bands are sort of on the background. That's all been bubbling up since the 70s. We haven't even touched how computers would change the music scene. Okay, I'll go down the area of like computers and music and synthesizers because that's just what I remember doing. Cool. That's all I spent my time doing in the 80s. This is Mike Shell, a friend and a mentor. And I am a computer programmer and I've spent part of my life as a recording engineer and producer. Mike Shell is the founder of VirtualNoise.com. We put out some of the earliest streaming media out of Canada. We streamed hip-hop, jazz, reggae, etc. from places like The Comfort Zone, a grimy old-school spot that would tolerate hip-hop back then. Mike even helped me to stream out of my parents' basement from Oakville, Ontario. That was in the late 90s. Mike is a brilliant self-taught coder, musician, producer, and family man. Well, first I got a VIC-20. And that's when I started to learn to code. I made a little bit of music with it, but it was a little weird. Like, just kind of 8-bit. Or actually, it was 4-bit. <laughs> right. Um, then I got a Commodore 64. That's around the time I got into synthesizers. And so I spent my money buying gear. So that was another thing, is the gear. That kind of gear was a lot more money. Right? Right. Like, so I spent, as a teenager, to, to drop 1400 bucks on a synthesizer. It was a lot of money. When now, you you know, if you pirate, uh, you're seek, you pirate a, a digital audio workstation and then the synthesizer's built into it, so you get all that stuff for, for nothing. Right. Um, but anyway, yeah, the stuff I remember about the 80s is just like working on my Commodore 64 and making music. I remember the Commodore 64. I had one. I feel guilty because all I did was play games. I did code one or two dilapidated programs, but in my defense, I was a bit younger my than Mike. Commodore 64 making music with my Roland Juno 106 and like. 707 drum I would learn more about these digital tools later in the 90s doing hip-hop closer to when I'd meet Mike it's interesting to think about how accessibility to production tools has changed from then to now 707 drum machine and uh, other, any other synths I can borrow from people wait to get the sound he wanted Mike had to borrow physical devices he had to travel to pick up hardware then come back to the lab, connect it all. That's before he could make any music. Imagine the reality. Today, hardware plays a completely different role. It's largely universal. The monetary, knowledge, and time cost barriers are far less today. In the 80s, we learned the rules of a world that was physical, mechanical, analog. We acclimatized to life in a whole other world, you needed patience for more than just, say, the production side of things. Time, work, patience was also necessary as a consumer. If you sought after interactivity, music, video, or whatever, you had to go out into the world and get it. Almost nothing was instant. Now the culture, the culture around seeking out and sharing and, and discovering music—that's a—that's a big change. The way we discovered music before was more, um, it was more work involved in it. More, I wouldn't say more 
more tedious. It wasn't more tedious because, you know, it was enjoyable to some degree, I guess. To put in the work of discovering music. Right. Either by taping a show and listening for stuff or getting a tape from a friend or, you know, having to actually physically talk to people face to face about music. <laughs> right. Uh, it's so different now because it's the sharing is, is, is sort of happens through social media. Symbolic 360 is about real interactions with real people. Analog Logs is about telling our stories from analog to digital, about what we went through and about where we are now, how we're doing. Let's connect past with present and plot where we're going. Music from this episode came from Pesos Beatery and CK Flow. Special thanks to DJ Ruckus and to our guests, Tiki Mercury Clark, DJ Paul Morton, and Mike Shell. Find me on Instagram at Symbolic1. Support us on Patreon on Symbolic360 Media. Until next time. <laughs>